1: Well, you guys, this is a big one for me. This is the first proper episode on the topic of religious and spiritual harm or abuse. I'm still kind of figuring out which of those terms I like best. Today, we use the word abuse in my conversation with Dr. Swindle. Uh, My dissertation has pivoted slightly away from uh, specifically focusing on end times related uh, spiritual abuse and is now just more broadly toward a measure uh, for religious or spiritual harm or abuse. And my guest today, Dr. Paula Swindle, is one of the only currently publishing researchers in the world in this field. It is There's not a lot going on. There is a lot of interest in non-research, non-academic circles, but not a ton of academic research being done. She's doing it. Uh, she's also on my dissertation committee, for which I am extremely grateful, so I'm stoked for you guys to meet her today. And when we initially recorded... She had not yet launched her own co-hosted podcast, uh, which quote, navigates the twisty roads of harmful theology, mental health, and religious abuse, end quote. So I think a lot of you will find that interesting. It's called Sacred Intersections. um, And now they actually do have their feed up for that show. So there's a link to the Spotify feed in the notes. uh, And when Apple gets added, I will put that in the notes as well. It's not added as of the time that I'm putting this together. Um, So there's not much else to say here. I don't think to get into this, except that you should expect more topics or sorry, more episodes on this topic as it's something I will be focusing on in depth over the next few years. So here I am with Paula Swindle. Dr. Paula Swindle, I am so excited to have this conversation with you. Uh, You know that I'm excited because we've already been chatting because you've already been helping me narrow down my kind of dissertation stuff um, (laughs) as one of only a handful of people who have really done any uh, academic research into this issue of spiritual abuse. I mean, really the the people who have anything published in a peer-reviewed journal uh, probably could count on one hand, at least in the last 10 years. There's, There was some stuff written in like the 90s and 80s and whatnot that is still around in book form. But in terms of people doing it now, I mean, you're one of like five people. So I'm very excited to be talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Wow. Well, thank you so much for having me. That is, that's an amazing introduction. And one of the things I said to you when we first talked was there is nothing someone who has put their time and energy and and large part of their life into a dissertation, loves to hear more than someone who starts an email with, I've been reading your dissertation. That just, that doesn't happen. So thank you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'll just set this up briefly. I found your dissertation, which is from 2017, so Mm -hmm. pretty recent, when I was doing research for my dissertation. Uh, We're doing kind of an early proto-dissertation this year in the program in the second year of my program and basically what i do this year i will modify and expand upon and correct and that will be the dissertation that's the plan and so yours was kind of like this gold mine dissertation where you had you had really laid out like here is what we know here is all the research from before 2017 and as i've hinted at there is very little since 2017 you took some of your dissertation had a co-author, got it into a journal in 2018, but it's basically the same stuff. And uh, there is like really one or two articles other than that since then. So thank you for writing that, first of all. <laughs> I appreciate it. You are welcome. Uh, and we've, uh, we've been in touch about this, the very interesting place that research into religious and or spiritual abuse finds itself. We're going to try not to get too much in the weeds. This is going to be A conversation for regular people to listen to. But I think it is a kind of an interesting look into what what it's like when a field is still budding. Um, This is not something like attachment theory. This is not something like PTSD. Like we understand PTSD quite well. There are thousands of careful studies about PTSD. There are six (laughs) articles about spiritual religious abuse. And as we're going to talk about, not even an agreed upon definition. And yet, as you will say, there is immense interest in it because it is very clearly a real growing phenomenon. Well, maybe the abuse is not itself growing, but awareness is growing of it. And it's probably something that's actually been with us since the beginning, but I don't want to get too ahead of myself in characterizing the research. Let's start a little autobiographically. At a personal level, what led you into psychology and counseling?
0: Yeah. So just a quick overview of my story. I thought I was going to be an English teacher back in my college days. I majored in English, minored in education, have always just been drawn to people's stories and their narratives and what drives people and helps them make decisions. And rather than going into teaching, I went into publishing right after my undergrad experience and loved that in many ways because I do love writing and reading and editing. But realized that relational piece was just so lacking and that my favorite parts of my day were people stopping by my office and so I had a pretty classic quarter life crisis of what am i doing with my life what have i trained for what did i go to college for and started looking around and you know i can't fully explain the nudge or the pull to counseling i'm just really thankful that i ended up there because pretty much any other job in the world, I don't think I would be that great at. But this is a place where kind of all of my intuitive qualities and skills seem to show up and be my qualities of compassion and intuition, kind of being able to, to meet people wherever they are. And so as I entered my master's degree in counseling program, what I found was it just made sense, you know, that, that there were now names for all these things that I kind of intuitively been, li- been living. So this idea of unconditional positive regard, is kind of like, okay, that's a fancy name for how I interact with people in my life. And, um, and so just kind of continue to build on that. So in the counseling world, which is, Similar, maybe a little different from the psychology world. Of course, lots of overlapping there. It's really normal for people to stop at their master's degree. In most states, that's enough to become fully licensed and to practice. There's really no need to go on for a PhD unless you want to do research or want to teach at the university level. So I, I stopped <laughs> my master's degree for a long time, many years. Worked in a lot of different areas in the counseling field did youth and family therapy, had a small private practice for a while, but really found my groove and my love in hospital settings and medical settings. So worked in the psychiatric departments for a while, mostly in the emergency department, doing mental health assessments, helping people in crisis and and making decisions about where to seek the next step. Then moved into providing counseling in more medical settings. So worked in cardiac rehab, pulmonary rehab, the oncology center, set up mental health programming there and really found a passion for interdisciplinary work and advocating for that understanding of mental health as part of overall health. And so I did that for 14, 15 years and then decided to go back to get my PhD.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, you mentioned that you, you, you want, you naturally are curious about people. You want to be a loving presence, this, you know, Carl Rogers, his term of unconditional positive regard this is this is the idea that in client based therapeutic modalities or styles you, the idea that like most people won't really change at all unless they feel accepted by the person who's trying to help them change that you know beating someone over the head with their failures does not work and if anybody has had political conversations with their conservative, you know, parents or in-laws, <laughs> you can attest to this. Uh, that is not the way that people change.
0: Shame does not motivate.
1: Right. Shame does not motivate. Unless, you know, may, maybe some in some more of abstract social way, it, it might in terms of like taboos and, mm-hmm. oh, it's like, it's uncool to have a Confederate flag in yeah. Washington state or something.
0: Or very temporarily kind of external yeah. change possibly too.
1: You you know the research better than I do on on shame and motivation <laughs> and all that. But so you also, as far as I can tell from reading your dissertation and talking with you, you've got also this acumen around getting into the nitty gritty. So you're you're doing research and you're now teaching, and so that's mm-hmm. that seems like a different skill set <laughs> than what you were talking about earlier. So what what kind of opened up to you that you wanted to to add that on the the teaching research bit?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So so it actually was when. The Counseling Licensing Board in North Carolina, where I live and practice, it added on a supervisor certification, and it was time for me to start my continuing ed for renewal, and so I thought, why not just direct all my continuing ed on supervision, and that just reminded me how much I do love clinical supervision, I love teaching and mentoring, and, and it also just reminded me too of a, when I worked in the hospital, a lot of the work I did was referring out. It was more short-term therapy and referring out. And so having a group of people I trusted to send those clients to, you know, I found that group just hard to find, a very robust group that I felt really comfortable. And so there was a little bit of like, okay, let's go upstream and help kind of plant and grow good counselors instead of continually trying to find them. And as you know, a bad counselor can do a lot of harm you know in very similar ways of what we're going to be discussing those power dynamics and people at their most vulnerable times in their lives when right. they are trusting someone and so so i just after practicing for a long time just really felt drawn and called to give back to the profession in a kind of bigger way and in counseling the way to do that generally is to go get your phd so I did and I was drawn to that primarily for teaching. I wanted to work at a university and train counselors and thought, oh, I gotta do this research as a part of that. <laughs> you know, that's that's a part of a PhD program. You gotta write right. a dissertation. And everyone had said to me, Do your dissertation on something you love, you're passionate about, you're gonna this is gonna be your life for all these years while you're working on your PhD. And so pick something that you know you can live with and that will be interesting to you. And I'm again, really thankful that that is what happened because this is a topic that just continues to energize me, continues to drive me to want to talk about it and have change and get just so excited to be able to have conversations like this. So, yeah, so going in more for the teaching put and then finding like, Oh, certain kinds of research can be really cool.
1: Right. Well, so that leads into my, my next question here, which is what led you into wanting to research, spiritual abuse specifically
0: so you know a lot of times when there's so there's a few different things when people hear and actually tend to use the term religious abuse although spiritual abuse is, and we'll i know we'll get more into that right when i say that people a lot of times think i'm going to talk about cults and i say no we're looking more at mainstream religion and my personal drive and pull to this was I grew up in a very small town in the mountains of Western North Carolina, across the street from the church where we <laughs> went to church, um, where my brother is now the pastor, which is super cool and super weird <laughs> at the same time. And I had a wonderful religious experience. And even as I left that small town and lived in much larger towns and medium-sized towns and had a lot of different experience in religious systems, my experiences have been by and large, just a very positive, loving, affirming, you know, that small, that tiny church in the mountains of North Carolina was really my village. And I felt affirmed in all of my identities. But of course, most of my identities are not a marginalized identity. You know, I'm white, I'm cisgender, I'm heterosexual, I'm a Christian. So, so of course, that made it much easier. But as I, just in my personal conversations with people, but more clinical conversations, so all those different settings I worked in, I worked in some faith-based settings, and but most of my work has been in more secular settings, and I would hear these stories of people who have been harmed in religious settings, and I felt this internal just drive to like, Oh, want to go? Oh no, that's not the God that I know. And this need to defend God. And of course being a hopefully reflective counselor that has to pay attention to those things that are stirred up in counseling sessions and that come out. I, I had to pay attention to both my reactions and provide space for these experiences for the clients to have their experience in whatever way they needed it. And so, so that was interesting to me. in my master's program you know, the field seemed to be really talking about the importance of integrating or at least assessing for spiritual for spirituality and a spiritual worldview with your clients. And then I came back to do my PhD, you know, 14, 15 years later, and we're still struggling with how to do this ethically, how to do it in a way that allows the client to have this aspect of their culture, but not imposing, allows the counselor to have whatever that aspect of their culture yeah, is there. whatever
1: the counselor's <laughs> worldview is, Right. right.
0: So there seemed like the research that was on spirituality and counseling in general, which is an interest of mine just more broadly, was a lot on how this can be used as a positive or as a strength with clients if it existed. And there just wasn't any guidance that I could find, at least initially as a clinician not in the research, and then when I became more of an academic in the research, there just wasn't direction for counselors about what to do when this comes up. And all of our ethical codes and our licensing boards say you should be assessing for all aspects of culture, including spirituality. And so if we're telling counselors to ask for this, and this comes up as a negative, and they don't know what to do with it, that's really you know, not fair to the client or to the counselor. But it was really more personal that You know, I continue to, you know, my faith has certainly had its ups and downs and dark nights of the soul and everything else, but my faith has been for me such a constant and comfort. And so just to personally hear how people have been impacted in a negative way, I wanted to know more about that. I wanted to understand it. I wanted to know birth on an individual level because that's my passion is individual stories, but also systemically. What are the what are the systemic things that set up these churches to be more inclined to be abusive systems or have abusive individuals? And so it was really more this drive of how can we prevent or heal this type of thing when it happens.
1: That's awesome. There's a lot of threads that we could pick up there, but one that seems like a good place to start is in my own. So setting up my dissertation, right? One of the things I need to do is motivate why, spiritual or religious abuse matters. And I think one of the strongest arguments for motivating that, it's not like it's hard to imagine that it matters, but you do have to, you have to show your work, right? Mm -hmm. And one of them is that there's actually a lot of data, there's a lot of evidence that spiritual communities, spiritual belonging, religious belonging, actually many aspects of the religious and spiritual experience, both internal, external, group-related, individual-related, whatever... These things promote healing. They're specifically evidence that they promote healing from trauma. And so the particularly insidious thing about religious and spiritual abuse is that it often precludes the main method that a religious person might use one of their main tools for healing from trauma. Mm -hmm. But they're not going to be able to do that. A lot of them anyway are not going to be able to do that. Because the site of their trauma is the place mm-hmm. where they precisely can't heal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. that. That's just something that stuck out that seemed worth kind of highlighting, that it is in that sense different. Like uh, a soldier who has PTSD from combat is awful, of course, and I'm very glad that a lot is known about that and in continuing to be learned, but it's not like they would ordinarily try and heal their trauma through going back on another tour of duty. Uh You, you come home from a tour of duty because everybody knows that a tour of do- duty is stressful and traumatic. This is opposite in that particular regard.
0: Yes. And, and I know we'll get more into kind of those betrayal aspects, but this idea, and maybe this is changing a little bit socially. I'm not and culturally, I'm not sure, but this idea that of what church is supposed to be, that it's supposed to be this safe place, positive place, this loving place. And so kind of this amazing whiplash when it's the exact opposite, and someone has that exact opposite experience in it. And I also was just really curious about When you add that sacred element in, you know, the abuse that happens within churches happens everywhere else too, you know, that often, you know, the different types that we're going to talk about. But when you add that sacred element of God is on my side and just this power dynamic that is so amplified when you add that sacred element in, I was really curious if that impacted people's experiences as well.
1: So I want to skip a little bit over the lack of a definition. I don't think we need to get too into the weeds the more I think about it there is no completely agreed upon definition but there are people working on working on close enough definitions that the you know hopefully one is forming but one thing that you and i chatted about the other day is that in in at least one setting it doesn't matter if there's a definition and that is in a clinical setting with a client right like for the survivor or victim of religious or spiritual abuse the fact that there's no agreed upon definition for research is really is, is unimportant So I just want to mention that, and that's kind of where we're going to focus here. But briefly, can you talk about the way that you define the term religious abuse, just so at least we know kind of what you're working with as we go further?
0: Sure. And, you know, the clinical setting, if I could speak on that as well, just for a minute, that absolutely one of the things we talked about is... My philosophy as a counselor in so many ways is not to define things for my clients, to journey with them. And so if they define something as abusive and religiously abusive, cool. We are, I'm not here to contradict that or argue with you that you did not experience right. that. And on the flip side, why having a definition can also be helpful in those instances is as much as I personally, and maybe resistant to labels in a lot of ways, it can be comforting for a client to say, Oh, That's it. That's what I experienced. 100%. To be able to have kind of this shared terminology and this collective just knowing of yes. Um, I I remember I talked about this in, in a master's level class one time, and one of the students just said, that's the most powerful thing I've ever heard. I did, I knew that had happened to me, but I didn't know what it was. And now I have a name for it. Or when a counselor had named their experiences as trauma, it was like, oh, it was, there was just some validation in that that was really important to the client. Um, but yes, at totally. the end of the day, I'm not here to define things for clients. But as for my definition, I kind of, I went into my dissertation study hoping that we would emerge (laughs) with something and I should have known better. Um, So it's a concept, as you mentioned, it really resonates with people. When I say religious abuse, there's always a spark. There's always a knowing of totally something pops into people's minds. It's many different things, but people automatically connect with that term in some way. But there, as you said, there's not a lot of empirical being able to prove what we what we are saying. So the definition that I came up with, um, I really don't love it, but it's but it's it's very it's a very general mental, physical, sexual, or emotional abuse that occurs within a religious context. So just those more basic aspects of abuse that have that religious label overlaid on them. You know, and I've been speaking more recently, more generally about the term religious harm, maybe as opposed to abuse, because there has been some pushback on, you know, words have meanings and some of the things that people say are not necessarily abusive, but they're mean or they're harmful. And so I'm not going to get into a semantic argument. You know, academics love to do that (laughs) many times. So it's an interesting conversation. But I also am also broadening that term a little bit as well to include harm there as well. So. Yeah, one of my favorite definitions in the conceptual literature that I was looking at Doyle had had used the term soul murder and that was just so powerful to me that one kind of stuck with me um so but speaking
1: of uh you know amping up the language if abuse is too far murder
0: <laughs> maybe <laughs> a touch further <laughs> yeah
1: a yeah. L- touch sensationalist well so we we've you know it's true that there is not an agreed upon definition. And, and as we've been saying, there's actually not even a ton of research yet on this topic. But that does not mean there's not interest in it. So when you go to these sort of professional conferences, when you're, when you're sort of in the mix of people who do your work, how popular are these sessions? What, what's the interest level on the ground, so to speak?
0: You know, I have spoken about religious abuse on kind of every level, a lot of counselors, to churches, to more broadly, to healthcare workers in general. And it's always, not because of me, but I think people just see that term and are really curious and drawn to it and have some idea about it. it. It's a topic that when I said I was doing my dissertation on religious abuse, there was never a, oh, okay. It was always a, oh, or that's so cool. Or let me tell you about this time. There's always some kind of reaction that people have. And Oftentimes it is driven from people who've experienced it and want to know more about it and are really comforted to hear that this is a thing, that it wasn't just their individual experience. But there's also I've had some really interesting pushback from highly religious people who are defensive and think that I'm coming in to bash religion that I'm coming in to say all the first the very first time I presented on this actually at a national counselor education conference. It was a roundtable discussion, which is just exactly what it sounds like. You're sitting at a table with about eight people. It's meant to be a very small kind of dialogue. Sit down while we're waiting to gather before I can even introduce myself. He just starts pounding the table and says, religion is not abuse." And, you know, I'm a doc student presenting on this topic for the first time. And so I've learned quickly to 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 share my story, as you so graciously invited me to do in the beginning, that I am coming from this as a person of faith, I carry the label of Christian, and that I'm not trying to undermine that. I'm not trying to bash religion. That's something we need to be aware of as counselors is that when people hear this term and they're on the very anti-religious end of the continuum and they hear this term and what to impose their values in a different way on clients, you know, that's there. But I'm not trying to understand it. But I just, you know, systems of power have to be open to examination. They have to be open to critique and questioning.
1: Yeah, it's like criticizing Catholics who were vocal about the sex abuse crisis, that they're anti-Catholic. It's like, no, they're probably very they're pro-Catholic. Anti- and that's why they're trying to like nip this thing in the bud before it mm-hmm. gets so bad. And then, of course, now we've seen the fruit of that in the Western world and just mass exodus of Catholics, uh, largely because of that crisis. So, yeah, of course, you can be, and I as well am coming from a Christian perspective as a practicing Christian and like, hey, can we not do this anymore? <laughs> can we reduce this uh, harm and abuse within the church context, you know? Now, here is kind of my question, meaning this is a term that it looks like my own dissertation is probably taking. What do we know about the prevalence of religious abuse?
0: Well, I'll give you a really quick answer. Not a lot (laughs) as you're finding in your research. And as I found in my research and, you know, we really, again, don't know a lot. And there's many layers of reasons for that. I mean, just abuse thrives in the dark anyway. Right. So, so we don't know about the true prevalence of any kind of abuse because part of that is the isolation and the silencing and the getting people not to talk about it. So that's really hard, but the gap in the research empirically, as you said in the beginning, is so huge. It's exciting and it's really challenging because there's so many different directions we could go in answering some of these questions or trying to Amen. fill in some of these gaps.
1: Yeah, I've had have had a hell of a time figuring out what direction today. I know I know my topic. I know what I'm interested in, but mm-hmm. there are so many gaps in the in the understanding. Like we couldn't ever say what percentage of people are being abused right now domestically, for instance. Mm -hmm. But if you ask women, you know, who are 40 and up, have you ever been the victim of domestic abuse? Like most people would answer correctly. There's plenty Mm -hmm. of survey data. We have a good sense for like roughly Mm -hmm. what percentage of women will be assaulted at some point in their life. Like there's just nothing even close to that for this topic. Right.
0: Right. Right. And part of that is, as we've been discussing what it means, so many different things to different people. So we have to start getting some operational definitions of what we're talking about so that we can start quantifying what we're talking about. And we're still, I think, probably really far from that, being able to do that. And then there's so many different denominations. And and I I do want to go ahead and clarify. My research was specifically religious abuse in Christian systems, right. because that's what I'm most familiar with. And I felt like if I'm going to research something, that's where I need to start. But of course this happens in every religion out there. So I, I want to be clear about that too. But even looking at that, then that just starts this snowball effect of, what does this look like in a Baptist church? What does this look like in a Catholic church? What does this look like in perhaps a Hindu setting? What does this look like? You can see how it just starts. And it's exciting. It's just, we... We just got a long way to go with being able to empirically figure some of this stuff out.
1: Yeah. And we might be researching this for decades because Mm -hmm. it's so early. Your dissertation, let's talk about this. The the main bulk of the uh, empirical work that you did is called a qualitative study. So a quantitative study is numbers, statistics, correlations, that kind of thing. A qualitative study is usually in-depth interviews with a much smaller pool of participants uh, you're really looking for themes. You're really listening. You're following threads wherever they go. So we're going to mess around with the terms of types, categories, <laughs> events, themes. Let's start with the broadest. You found three categories of religious abuse. What mm-hmm. are those categories?
0: So this came from mostly a study of the literature that was out there, which,
1: okay, right. you know,
0: again, not a ton of counseling literature or just type literature, a lot of conceptual work from theology, some from sociology. right? Um, so and some philosophers
1: things, are working on some this as well. Yeah.
0: Yep. So trying to pull all that together, these are very overlapping because any event of religious abuse can fall into one of these three categories. But I tried to at least break it down into wrapping my head around. It can be abuse that is perpetrated by a religious leader. So that could be pastor, priest, or youth pastor, deacon, elder. So someone in a very clear, overt position of power and leadership within that system that is often considered to be a representative to God. Some systems have a very clear hierarchy of they are closer to God than you are. That's yeah. just, just Sometimes how Sometimes it
1: it's more explicit than others, mm-hmm.
0: right? Yeah. So that being one type. The second type being the abuse coming from the group or a member who is representing the group. And this might be towards an individual or towards a group. This seemed to me mostly to be instances of marginalization or theological bullying or othering. I like to use the term other as a verb. Um, So kind of that pushing out. Beverly Green had a great phrase that I love called legitimized inequality of basically... Isn't that cool? (laughs) That just really resonated with me. Legitimized
1: inequality. Oh, that's good. I'm going to be chewing on that for a bit.
0: (laughs) That's it. Yeah. We'll have to talk about that That article was really important to me as well. Her work. So often we see this. So this might be when women are discriminated against simply being women. This might be experiences of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, It might be systemic racism, Either endorsed or just condoned by the church, it might be a specific, you know, pastor refusing to perform an interracial marriage, and you know, and that this goes way back, of course, when scripture was used to justify slavery, when scripture has been used to to speak against the civil rights movement, you know, all those kind of things. So, so that group or someone speaking for and representing the group thing, and so that othering piece of dehumanizing someone else again, in the name of God or in the name of theology. So So
1: first is the religious leader themselves. Second is coming from the group or representative of the group. Third.
0: And then the third, it seemed important to me to kind of pull this out for the work that I was doing. So the third, and remember, these can be overlapping. So the third is abuse where the justification for the abuse is driven by scripture or theology. So it might be an instance where, A man is there's intimate partner violence that is justified saying God told me to do this, you know, or if there is sexual abuse from a pastor saying God's chosen you for this and you're special, or a parent beating a child saying, you know, I've got to to beat the devil out of you, or I've got to um Yeah, or out of you.
1: Would it qualify as this as this category if it was like battered spouse goes to someone in the church and they stay point to scripture and say, Well, Jesus only said infidelity is the only reason to divorce so you got to yeah. stick in here
0: absolutely and that's when we get into the specifics of my study that was the experiences of many women in my study that they had gone to their churches for what they hoped would be supportive and became the exact opposite of no you have to stay with him no matter what and that's more important than you So that type seemed important to kind of have its own category because sometimes it is overt like that. And then sometimes the abuse happens, but it's just done with the context of religion around it. You know, there may be sexual abuse from a pastor where there's grooming that happens. There's, um, you know, access to the victim because of the church setting, but there's never this overt God told me to do this, you know, or God has chosen you for this, as opposed to those times when there is. So, you know, we talked earlier about the distinction between spiritual abuse and religious abuse. And I don't know that ultimately there is a huge distinction, but I've struggled with that a lot in my dissertation, which term am I going to do? Spiritual abuse does tend to show up, I think, a little bit more in the literature than religious abuse, but I was particularly interested in institutions and systems And how these organizations either hid this or perpetuated this or, um, you know, just were breeding grounds for this in some ways as well. So I was particularly interested in organizations. And I think spiritual abuse doesn't have to be connected to an organization. But I think if you are a religious organization, although we probably all know plenty of religious organizations that we may not call very spiritual, there's still this connection of the spiritual if someone says that they're a Christian or claim to be a representative of God. So, you know, there's aspects of that third category in the first two, of course, but that overt piece, I was also curious, does that tend to create
1: additional trauma? That seems to be like the most concentrated form is where somebody is making very explicit the connection between... The harm being done to you and God, mm-hmm. either mediated through scripture, mediated through the religious leader, the intuitions or prayerful, you know, the the God gave me a word, whatever it is. But like that is the million-dollar form of religious and spiritual abuse, right, is the yeah. uh, come, I'm going to molest you, you're special, God chose you for this relationship with me, mm-hmm. he just told me. That's the –
0: I mean, how do you argue with that? You know, that's when we get to the power dynamics, that's the, if you believe in God, there is nothing more powerful than God. If you have been worshiping this God and you want to please this God, and then this abuser cloaks him or herself in that justification, there's no real argument unless you are able, especially if the system is behind that and justifying that as well, or at least protecting the abuser. So... So yes, that overt, where it's very clear, can be very damaging. And then, of course, you know, you and I had a conversation about this as well, that sometimes there are people who are able to separate that very quickly and very clearly and say, uh-uh, God doesn't say that. <laughs> I know better than that. I've, I've got this different interpretation. But we know a lot of systems that allow that kind of questioning or that kind of free thought are not the systems where... This tends to happen. Of course, it can happen anywhere, Um, but it can also be more insidious when it's not overt like that. But there's still just this power of being in that leadership role or at least saying scripture says that you're evil and you're going to hell.
1: A softer version is the Bible is clear, dot, 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 and then Mm -hmm. saying something that the Bible is not clear on that (laughs) you happen to believe as the pastor of this church Mm -hmm. or whatever or leader of this Bible study. We might also call that spiritual bullying or whatever, but okay, I don't want to get too far into your themes that you found. Okay, I want to jump the gun. <laughs> so okay, Sorry. Those, spoiler alert: those are the three categories, and then there's you call them five types. We were chatting before. I I feel like events is maybe mm-hmm. kind of they're are settings, so sure. so to speak. So you have five sort of event or setting types where these abusive experiences happen. What are those yes. five?
0: So these were the five I actually prefer your term events um we were joking earlier that you know in the throes of being a graduate student late nights and deadlines and turning things in that you look back and maybe would have used some different terminology so so it's forgivable for sure (laughs) thanks and and I love that you're examining it in this way and helping me to rethink these things as well it's just I love the evolution of this Conversation.
1: Well, events. There's also like a a research angle to events that's a lot easier to to ask people about. You know, you Mm -hmm. like in terms of prevalence. uh, And I I feel like I should say, by the way, there are two studies of prevalence that I have come across because that's now where I'm leaning is Mm -hmm. to focus on prevalence because there's just nothing, almost Mm -hmm. nothing. One is a study of 200 Iranian college students, Iranian college students, and it's very Islam focused. They had a very high bar for what would count as these spiritually abusive events or whatever. And then the other is probably I'll be following up on is a study by Dr. Lisa Oakley uh, Mm -hmm. and her partner, Dr. Kinmond in the UK, which is a a survey of church goers in the UK. And they found some really interesting stuff. And I, I hope to interview her about that in the future. But there's nothing in the U.S. and there's nothing with people who have left the church. So we have Mm -hmm. literally no zero prevalence data on Mm -hmm. religious or spiritual abuse among people who actually left, who in some senses, that's the interesting group, uh, Mm -hmm. because those are the people for whom their faith commitments, their religious identity and belonging will no longer be available to them in the purpose of healing So Mm -hmm. anyway, just I feel like I didn't want to not say that there are those two and that's it. Uh, (laughs) And so probably I'll be looking at Americans who have left. That's how it's looking right now. Um, One of the things I'm thinking about asking is about events like this. Right. That's that was the tie in. One way you can measure prevalence is to say, well, I've got these 10 possible events that could have happened. And let's Mm -hmm. just see who's had one. And then we can start getting some numbers. But uh, right. of the seven uh, women that you interviewed, five event types came out. What were those? Right.
0: Right. And you know, you, you gave a very nice overview of th- this being qualitative research versus quantitative. Um, and so for the non-research people out there who are saying, well, I have only seven people. That's, that's the point is to really go right. deep rather than to go And So broad. this won't be an exhaustive <laughs>
1: list because of that, right? right? This is just the seven people you happen to interview – you know, who are all like white women, right? It's mm-hmm. not, you didn't do a nationwide sample. And that's <laughs> usually what you do with quantitative. You, you try and go as wide as you can right. with quantitative, but qualitative is different. You're you're doing a deep dive. It's it's more like the, uh, the episodes of my show that I've done around the end times trauma. It's like, I'm interviewing these people for a while, looking mm-hmm. for themes. Uh, as I said at the beginning of those episodes, not a representative sample. You know, this doesn't tell us much quantitatively.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, So I started out very just saying, if you hear the term, I've had an experience with the Christian context that I would call religious abuse, I want to talk to you. Great. And so I kept it very broad and hope to get some diversity of every kind in that, but also knowing seven people, that's going to be limited no matter what. But I was a little disappointed that I wound up having not very much diversity at all. It was all women, it were was all white women who were heterosexual. So of course that's limited, but still just fascinating stories, fascinating. You events. still
1: pulled out quite a few themes. I mean yes. like don't <laughs> don't worry, listener. There's a lot of meat in here for sure.
0: So out of these seven women, three of them reported that they had been in abusive marriages, physically abusive marriages, sometimes sexually abusive marriages. But that part wasn't the part that they categorized as the abuse as much as the way they were treated by their church as a result of trying to leave this marriage or get help with this marriage. So they were pressured, encouraged, outright told, shunned when they didn't, that they needed to stay in this marriage at all costs, that they needed to try to work it out, that several of these women reported that as far as sides go, the churches were taking the side of the husband, even though at least two of these women had grown up in this church these were their this was their childhood churches their
1: home church, not their, their husbands home church, church yeah. that their
0: husband was only going because of them, but because the husband was air quotes trying to save the marriage. And was more dedicated to the marriage. He was the, again, air quotes, good Christian.
1: Also because the husband was a man. Let's just make Absolutely. explicit what is implicit <laughs> here.
0: Absolutely. For uh, sure. He
1: gets the benefit of the doubt in a lot of more conservative settings being male. If he says, if he gives one sentence of like, well, I don't want her to leave me. I'd like to keep the marriage going. Then that's like all a certain kind of person needs to hear to be mm-hmm. on the abusive husband's side, which is insane. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's no other voice that can be heard after that voice is heard in many ways, in some of these settings. Right. So so that heartbreak and we'll get into the kind of the themes or the experiences of that as well. But sometimes, you know, some of these women had churches where meetings were had about them and they were um, very explicitly expelled from the church. Some just left as a result of all of the shaming and and shunning that came from it. So three women had that experience. Two of the participants were women who were in religious leadership in some kind of ministry and felt like they were discriminated against and bullied and emotionally abused throughout their time there until eventually they were pushed out of these ministry positions. One woman reported emotional abuse the way the Catholic Church handled her marriage annulment, and she also reported financial abuse around trying to get information around that um, annulment process. And then one participant, in addition to experiencing the abuse of marriage that I mentioned earlier, hearkened back to an experience she had as a teenager. So I was only talking to adults in this study, but she hearkened back to when she was a teenager and was visiting a church's youth group and had become very involved in this youth group. And she was also experiencing clinical depression and taking antidepressants. And the youth pastor found out about this and just straight up kicked her out of the church, out of the youth group, said she was bringing the devil into the group, that she was evil because she was taking antidepressants, called her parents in, told her parents this first. Her parents then allowed um, him to say the same thing to her. And so that's kind of that overt type, for sure, that we talked about. So- very
1: explicit, very overt. Very wow. explicit. Wow. Uh, yeah. Just because of my psychological training, the ethical alarm bells are just blocking out all other sound right now in my head. That's just what an insane abuse of power mm-hmm. uh, and just, I don't On know, like level. massive ignorance.
0: Yes, like, That's like, how, such vulnerable ugh. time and such ugh. a time of self-consciousness. And if you uh, gave
1: yeah. half a shit about teenagers in general, how could you do something like that? This is the 20th century. I guess I don't know how old this woman was when this happened, but like, oh, my gosh. And okay, you know, so I'm the just, interesting ugh. thing.
0: It, so part of my process was, you know, recording these and transcribing these and I won't take a Getting too much of the weeds for this, but there was someone else who helped me pull out themes and codes. And then we had an auditor who was kind of looking for bias in our themes and codes. And I remember my auditor saying, as he read these transcripts, just weeping with heartbreak for them, but also recognizing at the same time how many people would say, That's not abuse, that's just good theology. And who truly believe that you know that's that's the part that
1: i can see that for really a part- lot of these more than you're on antidepressants like what does that guy not take <laughs> blood pressure medication you know <laughs> like come on it's- it you know, makes sense,
0: it makes sense to you and me, but if there's this deep belief sure. of that, that's distrust a lack of, of faith.
1: Pharmaceuticals, yeah, yeah. right, right, yeah. And
0: if there's that lack of faith, so I guess
1: the closer you get to kind of like a Jehovah's Witness, Christian Science type, uh, maybe in a Pentecostal situation with a lot of faith healing emphasis, I could see that getting more that way. I was not raised anywhere near that. I was raised like milk toast California evangelical. We we were pretty good with science <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> Uh, cool. And my dad was a therapist, too. So that I'm sure yeah, that changed that, it. That but, helps.
0: And I want to be okay. clear. I'm not I'm not saying that to justify their thinking anyway. No, I, no, of I, course. I completely uh, it goes without saying think it's wrong. <laughs> but I think it's yeah. interesting that that changes the conversation you can then have with people around prevention and around understanding. Oh, totally. Experiences.
1: Well, and of, we're going to talk about I don't know if we'll talk about it because with your study, but, you know, LGBTQ issues are are a really sticky one here because. Depending on your theological point of view, you might still say, well, there are abusive and unnecessarily mean ways to go about it, but there is a scriptural standard or something. So you're going to have a harder time sort of convincing people of the abuse, maybe in something like that, being shamed for being gay, right? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, you might like, you might get some of them to agree that, that the shaming part was wrong, but that the, you know, the teenagers probably had a good, you know, heart because they are trying to uphold God's law or something like that. The the f- closer you get to like physical and sexual abuse, the clearer those lines ought to get and the easier it should be to sort of convince all parties of the issue. Am, right. am I on to something there?
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I was getting at that makes it really tricky when you have someone who genuinely believes this, you know, or, or that they believe their intentions are pure as opposed to. You know, I imagine there are some pastors who sexually abuse who are, who can convince themselves of that. But when they are confronted with it, there's generally a shared understanding that this was wrong, as right. opposed to someone who genuinely believes they're doing what God tells them to do.
1: Sure. And Westboro spiritually- Baptists, right? I mean, they don't think that they're <laughs> doing the wrong thing. They're fully convinced, although they're obviously an extreme example of that kind of indoctrination.
0: Sure, and I, I, you know, I'm so fascinated about how people get there because things seem really clear and obvious to me when I read scripture. But I also have to recognize my lens that I'm coming from right. and, all, and my experiences with loving churches and unconditional love and a grace God, and and yeah. and it, 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 that that's just another interesting thing to me is this idea of we think of abusers as this big bad like I'm going to harm you. Sometimes that's an easy caricature to put on them, but
1: oh no, no, often.
0: These, these people who really think they're doing the right thing.
1: I mean, one way of saying it is every single person at all times is at least at some pretty significant level responding to incentives and disincentives and operating out of a sense of their own identity, mm-hmm. most of which they didn't choose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, our, our free will, though I believe it's real, is quite constrained. You know, the little the rudder. Only moves a few degrees each direction, and mm-hmm. you only get major change by moving it a few degrees consistently over time. And so, yeah, we do we do need to have compassion for individual abusers. Now, that's I'm not saying uh, a victim needs to have that immediately. I'm not nothing like that, of yeah. course, not of victim course. blaming or anything. But those of us standing outside, if we want to be, let's say, psychologically uh, mature have a a clear sense of the human person, then that will lead us to actually dropping some of that kind of moral outrage at the individual failures of these people. And how could they have made such choices? Well, a lot of these are not choices. They are the result of systems and, and some of them are choices. And, you know, like that's why I'm, you know, when it comes to policy, which we we may or may not get to policy and that's fine. But it to me, I'm so much more interested in like removing them from leadership than I am, you know, mm-hmm. punishing the, you know, like it's like, uh, well, how do people change is a lot more difficult, a lot more black and white. Is you're not a pastor anymore, like that's right. that's what we need to be very clear about, you right. know. Anyway, that was a bit of a rabbit trail. There's one <laughs> more event type before we take a little break.
0: So there's also a woman who wasn't necessarily in an abusive marriage but who just chose to leave a marriage where her husband had been unfaithful and was still shunned and that's (laughs) right there in the text exactly but was still he wanted to work on it she didn't and was still just and it was a very you know the, the black and white action behind this no nuanced conversation no discussion just you're wrong because you made this choice so that was yes one of the other Women. So lots of stuff came up around marriages and the churches need to control people's marriages.
1: Well, this is fascinating, Paula. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to get into these 10 themes that you found in all of these long form interviews.
0: All right. Sounds good.
1: As most of you now know, you can support this show financially, by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Dan You have access to the patron-only Facebook group, as well as at least two extra episodes, exclusive episodes per month. The most recent was a very lively and very fun conversation with the hosts of the Dirty Rotten Church Kids podcast, and also the creators of many hilarious Christian memes on their Instagram page. So, to, be, uh, to become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. The link's in the notes. You get to hear that episode and all the other past ones. All right. Back to the episode of Paula. Okay, Paula, I'm excited about this. So in your research, you specifically were looking for themes of any kind Two of them we might call positive themes and eight of them negative. I'd like to save the two positive ones for the end to kind of end on like a because there's a, <laughs> this is a heavy, there's a lot of kind it's of deep, hard. deep it's shit hard. in this conversation yep. here. Uh, I, I've already had a couple pretty emotional moments here just chatting mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. So we're going to end on a, on a bright note. And just, I want to let people know that on a <laughs> healing, a healing note. But let's spend some time in the, in the muck here. So, Eight of these 10 themes are are negative. What's the first one?
0: Yeah, so I was really trying to get at what are these themes of people's experiences in this idea or this umbrella of religious abuse. And so the first one being what I called emotional trauma, which is really just kind of a catch-all term for all of those lasting emotional consequences or those that lasting emotional impact or effects that people experience so was expecting to see and did see a lot of sadness fear anger just all those ways some people report are feeling damaged um, having their self-worth very much impacted so that's one that could probably has a lot of sub themes in between it and sure But that's really I just it was this one catch all term of yes, there were negative emotional impact, often long term from these experiences.
1: Did you find a distinction between sort of negative emotional impacts just toward the self, like a a generic depression or anxiety or shame, lack of self-worth and uh, negative emotions toward one's faith community, towards God, towards parents and childhood upbringing, that kind of thing?
0: Yes. All of that. So, so a lot of it in the time was very directed inward and what they were experiencing and not knowing where to direct some things to, because again, this was a place that was supposed to be something very different than what it was. And so that was there. There certainly was some more kind of trauma with the big T as we describe, you know, more technical terms of trauma, people who would get very triggered by being back in a religious setting or by, seen a pastor or those kind of things. So yes, all of that.
1: So any, any kind of like panic attacks or whatever in a church setting would, would count under this emotional mm-hmm. trauma. Yeah. Yes. The next one is betrayal. I feel like we're talking about, uh, we're, we're doing movie plots here. <laughs> this is not a word I, it makes, now that I'm thinking about it, betrayal, it makes sense, but I, I don't think I would have anticipated a theme like that. Uh, I'm really interested in this.
0: This was actually probably where I would, say the biggest impact was had. And of course, as you mentioned, all these are overlapping because this is part of the emotional trauma as well. But this is something I really expected to see and was not surprised to see it. So we think of the term betrayal, how I define that is being harmed by someone that you trusted. And so that term trust is really, really important. And you think about the word trust in any religious setting, you know, I mean, that's, that's your, key to get in most of the time that you report that you have trust and you're asked to trust and you're asked to be your most vulnerable self and to confess and to be held accountable and to worship and to sacrifice and all of these things that we're asked to do. And, you know, we mentioned earlier how churches are supposed to be these places that are safe and a sanctuary. I mean, that's the literal word that we use, Uh, they're supposed to be a sanctuary to go and be loved and to meet a positive God. At least that's the idea, generally speaking. So when that doesn't happen, you know, that's that impact of what it was supposed to be and then being the most opposite can have such an enormous impact. I, I called my dissertation subtitle was a twisting of the sacred. And so this is where that ultimate kind of twisting happens. So we see it on so many different levels. So some people reported feeling betrayed, of course, by their perpetrator. So that might be their religious leader. That might be their friend that sat in the pew next to them, their whole childhood, and now says, you can't be here if you're, if you want to be safe and away from your husband. That might be feeling betrayed by God. So there might be a conflation of the abuse with God and really wrapping all that together so it might be betrayed by theology by what you believed in betrayed by your own beliefs betrayed by the system and all the things that come along with it so oh and betrayed by your family too you know sometimes
1: yeah that's big
0: yeah this is to see your family say no because you're not following the rules that the church says that you must follow we now are not going to support you either. So it can be that betrayal on so many levels of what was supposed to happen and the trust that you put in someone and being harmed by that.
1: So you might think of the family doing that as additional, maybe kind of uh, incidental, right? So well the family would choose, but, but actually a lot of more kind of tightly prescribed religious systems really encourage this kind of Family pressure as like one of the methods of getting someone back in the fold and keeping the current members of that are in the fold pure from, you know, damaging influence from the the family member who left. I I don't know if you, you have anything more to say about that. I just find that to be such an interesting dynamic because it comes up against like literally the most primal and strong forces in the human psyche. You know, I have mm-hmm. a seven month old right now mm-hmm. and I just, you know, I would do so many things I regret. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would regret later in to keep him safe or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, I just I'm aware of it. Mm-hmm. I would be like, oh, I really should not have shot that guy. You know, like later I would think that. But in the moment, I don't know what I would do. I'm, I have so much protection reflex toward him. And, you know, so it's I always find that so fascinating when systems are able to kind of twist that power that that i would call sacred there is something sacred in those fam those natural family bonds anyway any thoughts on that
0: yes absolutely you know when we think back to how we were defining religious abuse i think if i were to sum it up it might be when religion or jesus is used as a weapon and so looking at just the different things that can be weaponized and how you can weaponize someone's family against them And that's where I think this comes from is that when the system feels threatened, what's, it's going to use any tool it can. It's going to reach for any weapon it can. And to kind of then deflect, just push that pressure from the big system of the church down to the smaller system of the family. And even that word family, I mean, that's a very churchy word. You know, this is your church family. We are your family. We are your village. We are. And then so that word on many levels can be weaponized as well.
1: So good. I mean, so bad and so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, when God is used as a weapon, that's a fun little shorthand definition. I'm going to kick around. I'm going to let that one kick around my head.
0: I may um, let go of the long, the long wordy one and just go with that one.
1: <laughs> well, it's uh, I, I you probably haven't heard it, but it. it I have to at least mention that Terry Shoemaker, who I think you did, you told me you listened to his episode on the spiritual but not religious, but he was on the show about a year ago, maybe a little longer talking about culture war Christianity. So in his qualitative research with mostly Southern young adults, their experience of being weaponized by their church community and family into a weapon in the culture war Mm. So rather than mm. being treated as an end in themselves, mm-hmm. it's like, well, we'll send our college kids, our kids to this college, which is fighting the culture war that we want mm. to fight. And so turn them into a missile, a projectile of some sort, mm. rather than just, you know, loving them and seeing what mm-hmm. they need. And letting uh, and them so that's,
0: figure out what they want to do themselves.
1: Right. And- that's a little yeah. different, but there's some interesting parallels there that I'll I'll just be kicking around. And if people haven't listened to that, I think it's episode – Somewhere between 15 and 20, something like that, cultural war Christianity. Okay, what's number three?
0: So betrayal and then probably this one were the ones that, that I was probably, again, expecting and did see and that I feel are kind of the really big ones. And this is where the participants reported feeling like the rules and quote and rules were prioritized over them as people. And that they were just very, they felt very devalued because of that. So they were sent the message time and time again that what you were supposed to be doing, like this rule that you're supposed to stay married, is more important than your literal safety. You know, one of the participants had the most powerful quote of she just said, literally, if I had done what the church wanted to do, I would be dead. You know, there's no question. There was no question about it. In my mind, I would be dead. But their rules were still more important to them than the fact that I was on a path to be dead very soon. And I absolutely believed her. It was escalating to the point where that was where it was going. You know, the rules and I know there's lots of theological arguments around Gender and women in the ministry and things like that. But again, this rule that women cannot be in leadership, taking precedence over what someone described as their genuine calling, what they felt like God was telling them, but then being told, no, God's not telling you that because God can't be telling you that because this is the rule, those kind of things just these messages that you are not important the rule is important and you have to follow the rule which to me just to step out of my counselor role and every just personally me as a christian that's such the opposite of how i experienced jesus you know jesus was all about the relationships and the people and that rules were created i think to help us you know rules were created to support us and guide us and
1: yeah this one this one's interesting how do you see Resolved in a situation like let's take it to an extreme, and someone says, "I feel called to be a worship leader at this church, but I've really been interested in Satanism as well as my Christianity." (laughs) Okay, so here's one way I'm thinking of it: the pastor or whomever could say, "There's no way that God wants you to look into Satanism for any reason. You're wrong, and you won't be able to lead." The other thing they could say is, "You know." We have some agreed upon boundaries for this community, and so that would that would put you outside of it. I'm not saying that I know for sure that you shouldn't be a Satanist, but this community doesn't have Satanists leading worship. Like, someone's lived experience might still be that that second one was abusive, but I would not call that abusive. I would say, you're at a Christian church, certain things are just not, you know, like, what did you expect kind of a thing. I don't know. So it can get kind of messy there.
0: It can get very messy. That's, that's why we continue to have this lack of agreed upon definitions as well. Because, yes, I would agree with you that that, that person would describe that as a non-affirming experience. And I would agree with you that, yes, that doesn't make sense for the context of those agreed upon norms within the church. And so maybe that is a bigger question is just agreed upon norms like, what does that look like from an abuse standpoint? You know, are, are the norms right. that I don't I don't know the answer to that. I well, think so that's a that good brings up,
1: It's a really interesting because uh, a lot of the conversation around church clarity, the particular organization and just the broader the broader question of like, how clear ought churches to be about their policy on sexuality, on LGBTQ, mm-hmm. on divorce, on you know, whatever. And that's what that organization is pushing for. I have in the past kind of pushed back on that a little bit from a sociological perspective of, you know, my, my personal, and I don't know where you land on this. We haven't talked about any of this stuff. Personally, I am gay affirming theologically, and I would like uh, a maximal percentage of churches to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually think that the churches will essentially die if they don't do that within 50 years or so. Um, I agree. And that it's inevitable. Okay. Well, that's Mm -hmm. good. So we're on the same page there, but I understand that people have different views on that. And, and my perspective is like, well, if you want that to happen, then you might not want churches to feel like they have to draw a line in the culture war. You might want them to like l- hold on a few more years, and maybe ten percent of the church body changes during that time, and it's more likely that they'll they'll change and like they you know incremental movement of people who are unlikely to agree in this particular moment. So that's been I've been I've been quite open to that counter view. But the church clarity position is one of thinking about, you know, the the possible victims of this. And for instance, the difference between someone who wants to play, and by the way, I think this is a pretty common one, like wanting to be in the worship band, wanting to serve in the youth group. Like these kind of, I'm not trying to be the lead pastor. I just want to be involved in my community. And that's like a make or break kind of moment in a lot of ways. Like that's when someone either dives deeper into the community or they're out. Mm-hmm. So. The difference between a church that says, look, you know, I I think you're awesome. It's clearly stated on the website. This is our policy. If you are actively a, a gay person, like, you know, maybe that will change. But for now, uh, you know, that's different than there's nothing on the website about this. There's a lot of language in sermons about being open. and Everyone's welcome here, gay, straight, whatever. But I, now I want to play guitar and I can't, you know, like – I guess I'm I'm coming a little further toward maybe their their stance in thinking of it from the perspective of that lack of clarity that that has a maybe abuse or non-abuse dimension to it.
0: Yes, that is that's a lot for me to think about cuz that's I, I just
1: I spoke for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. No, man. that's
0: a that's something that's a term that I have not taken yet in this research and I think there's a lot there that can be done. I mean a few things that come to mind as I hear you talking is just again systems that won't allow examination either from within or without that often to me is a really big red flag. And that is not, You know, if you have a stance on something, you should be confident in it. You should be able to have a discussion about it. You should be able to defend it and not just squelch the question.
1: Oh, I love that. That's so interesting. Yeah. Like the only reason you're not putting it on your like, what's the reason you're not putting it on your website? Like I might have a sociological argument for why I like that. It's not on there because maybe I think that that will serve in the end. But like if you're is it just money? Is it like you know you're you're afraid that you'll scare some people off if you just yeah. put it on there? You know, like and what that's does that say about your
0: priorities? Right, <laughs> what exactly. Does that Say about what's important. So you know, I I honestly think the church I go to would welcome someone who wants to worship Satan to say, "Come worship with us and be who you are, and we will love you." And we're probably not going to let you do a testimony from the pulpit on <laughs> that, but yeah we're also not going to shun you and say you can't be a part of that because it's a system that trusts that this is not about us you know this is about that person's journey with god sounds like a person. healthy church
1: but I you think can it is. you I, can I imagine on the
0: unicorn <laughs> right
1: but you can imagine plenty of churches being like you're you're literally bringing the devil into the room
0: mm-hmm.
1: like that this is not about loving you sir or ma'am this mm-hmm. is about like we're not letting demons in here, you know.
0: Jesus hung out with Jesus hung out with the devil. Well,
1: I agree, Paula. <laughs> For the record, what kind of church do you go to, just so people can use this in their calculations? I, I
0: go to a Presbyterian church, and it is very affirming, and very clear about that. It is a small church. Um, is it a PCUSA I- church? you know, I'm a new Presbyterian. Okay, I, you think don't know. It is. Okay. I think it if is. If it's I affirming, <laughs> it's
1: not PCA or OPC. That's for sure. It can't be. Yeah.
0: It's my pastor is going to be very disappointed in me, but because we did ask a lot of questions, but my husband and I both grew up mostly in either Baptist or non-denominational. And so I have, I've had enough experiences in Baptist churches to know that there's so many different types and there are some yeah. wonderful Baptist churches and I had wonderful experiences there yeah. that were open and moderate and progressive. And um, but just when we moved to the location where we are now, we really we weren't even sure if we were going to go back into a church. When I did this research, I stepped away. My husband and I were both in leadership positions. We were teaching a young adult's class. We said, I'm gonna I'm gonna go into some really dark stuff here and I don't need to be sorting that out while I'm trying to teach wow. or mentor other people. And so that was really free to to kind of be able to not go to church on a Sunday morning after having done that for most of my life. But so when we came to the area where we are, you know, it's a medium-sized town in Western North Carolina, and we weren't sure if we were going to find a church where we absolutely could sit next to, you know, people who were struggling, searching, questioning, but that's what I want. I just am so, I grew up being taught that, to question everything and not just accept things and to examine them and to not be threatened by it. Because if you're confident in what you believe, you're not threatened by questions, you know, it helps you examine that. So I know that was a rabbit trail that we got off on, but that's kind of what came to mind with, with if someone that doesn't fit that mold wants to be a part of it.
1: Yeah. Let's move on to the fourth one. What's, what's for the fourth theme here?
0: Um, The fourth theme was abuse of power, or really overtly using the sacred to control or manipulate a member. And so, you know, there's a power differential at play in any abuse situation. That's kind of one of the basis of abuse is that there is someone's higher than the other one in some way. And and so looking at, again, going back to our earlier conversation, if you have God on your side, that's just, who can argue with that if you claim to have God on your side? So if you're using that as, your defense or as your weapon so this is abuse done in the name of god or as a representative of god so this idea of you're gonna stay in this marriage or you're gonna get pushed out of this church so you're gonna stay here because god wants you to and your husband needs you to of course the most i don't know if it's the most extreme but an extreme version of you know you're either going to if you as a woman try to get up and preach over men You're going to go to hell. Just this threat, this fear of using that power. So, this idea that I know best, I'm closer to God. So, really pulling in that ultimate power into that power dynamics.
1: I've been recently thinking that this is maybe at the very center of this entire podcast. Mm. That it's it's another way of, of getting at the very center. So, the way that I frame it in the introduction, and often when I talk to people, is like. We have these natural questions. They are good questions. People tend to give us either bad or insufficient answers. And a lot of times they will say this is the answer. And one thing I push on a ton is the breadth of actually there are many answers that thoughtful and loving and devout people have given to these questions over the years and across denominations and and traditions and stuff. And I wonder – this is another way of getting at that, that like – the epitome of the kind of Christianity I am arguing against is the, the sole leader who says, this is what it says. This is what God wants of you on a question for which there are multiple interpretations. That, that moment right there, that's the mm-hmm. thing I am most frustrated with mm-hmm. and like most get most fired up about is that that is an abuse of God's sheep it is like it's like hey i know you follow that shepherd but follow me instead like mm-hmm. i've got a i've got a dial on it and in some traditions within christianity and not all that kind of frankly narcissistic not always narcissistic could mm-hmm. just be overconfident kind of you know strong leadership strong commitment to sound biblical thinking or whatever is really valued and I'm just like so suspicious of it. And and it's just, you know, also empirically false. We could probably count on two hands the things that the Bible and the Christian tradition teach unambiguously. Christ is God in some sense. Okay. Christ died and rose. Okay. You know, there's a handful of them and there's not that many. You know, once you get beyond the basically the Apostles' Creed – You, you know, and even then there's like, well, some of that's (laughs) just language that was around and actually doesn't, you know, consubstantial with the father is like not even a term that makes sense anymore. So, you know, there's just very few of those things. I'm soapboxing here, but this is like another way of getting at that same thing that is so central to my whole mission.
0: Well, because it's all about control, right? That's why it gets me fired up as well, was it's this I am in control God is on my side, and I'm going to use God to prove that I'm in control. And I don't trust you to figure it out for yourself. I'm going to control figuring it out for you so that I can control you. That's inching closer to that end of the continuum of cults because we know cults are about ultimate control.
1: Right, all the way over. Right, exactly.
0: All the way over. But there's still, before you get all the way over, is this idea of I have it figured out, you don't. And I'm going to use this to show you how you're wrong and I'm right, rather than trusting you and trusting God to help you figure this out and how you choose to interpret this piece about marriages and how, what, how what you feel God is saying to you. And maybe that's the old traditional Baptist free will in me too, but, but that I'm so resistant to pastors who are all about control.
1: Can I ask a clinical question? Have you seen as clients any of this type of leader? And if so, do you have any insight into like what is motivating them? Because control, we the way we've been using it is I the leader am controlling you the congregant or maybe whatever. But what about am I controlling God? Am I controlling myself, my anxieties about maybe getting this wrong and dedicating my entire life to something? It's just, I'm thinking there's other ways of looking at that.
0: Well, yeah. And bringing back my counselor identity into this, that's making me realize too, that's probably why I'm so resistant to someone trying to control someone else, because that's so opposite of what I try to do as a counselor, You know that I am not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to journey with you and provide space for you. And so when I see someone trying to do that in a different context or setting. So have I seen clients around who are at that space? You know, it's it's interesting because typically these are not the kind of people who are going to seek mental right. health counseling.
1: Right? That, that's a bit of a unicorn in <laughs> itself, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. That's someone who's willing to seek out advice, especially from a woman who's going to oh, yeah. to be in that, to kind of be vulnerable. Um, you know, one of the things I loved about being a counselor in medical settings is I did get to expose people to counseling who would never otherwise have been in counseling. And right. cardiac and pulmonary rehab worked with a lot of elderly clients who generationally are just not typically going to go sit in a room and have a chat with somebody, but, but being able to see me up in front of them teaching a class on why stress hurts your heart or why, you know, stress and panic attacks make it harder to breathe when you have breathing problems already. So that was interesting to kind of maybe disarm people a little bit who were already, you know, there's such a history of distrust between religion and psychology. And and some of that's really valid on both sides. And some of that lives on. So I do really enjoy opportunities to be able to say, I'm just here to talk and let you be you and give you maybe some things that might help take them, leave them, (laughs) whatever you want to do with it. So I'm trying to think if I've had someone in my office.
1: I would think I I didn't even think about that. It'd have to be a male therapist. The the kind of guys I'm talking about would not go see a woman, Mm -hmm. you know, if they would see anybody. So anyway, it's a, it's something for people to kick around. I've one more little side trail on this abuse of power. Mm -hmm. So the way that you described it was uh, like a pretty hefty abuse of power by an individual, but I was listening to or reading something the other day. I think it was actually in class. And this idea came up of people with anxious attachment styles, adults, So Mm -hmm. those who don't have, they're not so secure that they are in loving, connected relationship, that they are enough, you know, so to speak, can be drawn to church communities that require or heavily encourage like a lot of involvement, a lot of basically free labor and Mm -hmm. service, which of course can be tremendously valuable to be giving back Mm -hmm. to your community. I don't mean to say that at all, but – Those people who are anxious in that way can be exploited unconsciously or consciously to just give and give and give. This probably wouldn't have made it into your study. It seems like a softer version of this abuse of power. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts about that. And maybe you have seen clients that that would apply to them.
0: You know, I don't know that I've conceptualized it in quite that way, but absolutely seeing clients where it's just an issue of boundaries, right? At its core, that's what it's about. And our self-worth and how our self-worth, where it comes from, and those people who the doing or the approval or seeking those kind of things. So certainly that's how I probably would conceptualize it is where's your self-worth coming from? And absolutely churches, this is an area where I don't think there's intentional, but I mean, who doesn't love having a workhorse, you know, on either in your church or, or all the incentives are lined (laughs) up.
1: Yeah. Like the incentives of the church are like, this person's willing to do all this labor and we need it. The incentives of the person are, I, I am feeling connected here. My anxious attachment is being momentarily, you know, soothed because they're valuing me or whatever. And so Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a soft slide into an abusive dynamic if it ever becomes that way.
0: Sure. And, and so, again, those healthy dynamics of being able to examine what are the needs of, of everyone in this system. And, you know, even though this person is providing all these needs, are we also looking to meet their needs? And that, that's not something I think most systems are just set up to do, even the healthiest ones, because, again, everybody loves people who get stuff done and <laughs> want to be around. And I'm not sure if that's exactly what you meant, but that's kind of what came to mind for me.
1: No, yeah, and that's there's an interesting policy discussion there to be had, but we'll we'll move on for now. So those were the first four. Uh, what's this fifth uh, theme you found?
0: Isolation was what I called it. In, in retrospect, looking back at it, I wondered if I might have been better served to use the term grief and then isolation is a part of it, or perhaps separate but connected. But, of course, isolation, very classic abuse tactic from any abuser to separate you from support that might help you identify that you're in an abusive relationship of some sort. So this casting out, so it might be isolate you to abuse you or to make it easier to continue to abuse you, or it might be the isolation is the abuse where they're isolating you and casting you out So a lot of people reported just loss connected to that betrayal. So loss of of their church family that had been a good support to them, or at least a support, if not a good support, something. Loss of their family members' support, loss of their relationships with their family because they couldn't, chose not to stay in those unhealthy relationships. So, you know, in some of these instances... Especially in the marital situations where the pastors were like, "We will counsel you," so the counseling coming from the abusive system, the guidance coming from the within with <laughs> the abusive system, and how messed up that is. To to uh, we're the only ones that can help you. Yeah, um, I've had a friend whose pastor said, "You know, you don't need to talk to anyone else about your marriage but me. I'm the only one that can help you," and you know the ego and narcissism of course is so is so messed up on so many levels but the damage that's done from not being able to hear other voices or perspectives and see how it's not only perpetuating perhaps an abusive marriage but is abuse itself within that so the isolation has a lot of different layers of how it showed up as a theme but a lot of loss and grief around that as well
1: yeah so isolation as a tool and then feelings of isolation as a right. result which might uh, also fit under emotional trauma right or or sort of in that large right. umbrella so again there's a lot of overlap there in terms of the the felt experience of the of the survivors right
0: right and this is something you know as, as i keep trying to refer back in this work when I was doing it was how can this be helpful to counselors? How can this be helpful to people providing services? This is one that's really important for those counselors who are not religious or who might be anti-religious, who might not really understand the grief and the loss of an abusive system, who might just be tempted to say, just get out, just get out of there. You know, this is, this is obvious. This sucks. What are you doing? And they're like uh,
1: viewers of the Jerry Springer show. Why are you still (laughs) with him? Like yeah. We should all know by now, because uh, it's complicated, right? Yeah. you know,
0: It's complicated and it was serving them in some way and there's connection there. And if they do choose to separate from it, there's going to be deep emotional pain from that. Right. So so being able to see that on all ends of the continuous from potential bias from counselors there.
1: That is one other research angle that I am fascinated by and probably will do some non peer reviewed qualitative stuff just for this show. On like the, the the real cost of losing one's faith identity, whether mm. you stay within the broader Christian tradition or not, the the kind of like the term I like is coming down from eternity.
0: Mm. That's
1: kind of my little catchphrase mm. that there's something that you perceive to be eternal in it all. And the more conservative, the more fundamentalist, the more eternal stakes there are will be because that language will be used more and more. And then to come down from that, even I've experienced this to come to a progressive Christianity. I'm still Christian. You know, my fundamental orientation towards Jesus has changed quite little. Maybe some of my atonement thinking and stuff has changed, but like, you know, but then like, I don't have like this secret knowledge about, you know, yada, yada, yada. I'm not, I'm not like a spy in the best spiritual army in the world mm. anymore. I'm not, mm. th- th- you know, these are, I'm thinking of some <laughs> kind of bad examples in the moment, but this kind of coming down from this immense meaning. And that's something that I would hope to also help. Yeah. Non-religious clinicians dealing with formerly religious or clients with religious change. Mm-hmm. as was like, that's real. Like we gotta, we need to talk about the the real pain of that.
0: Right. And the ethical considerations of what are we qualified to do strictly from the mental health end and in crossing over into kind of that theological guidance or interpretation. And and there's so much potential for imposition and our own stuff to come up in that. But yes, we've got to be, but it's showing up. It's showing up in all of our counseling settings. So we've got to be comfortable talking it. We need to be broaching it. So inviting our clients to be able to talk about it and that this is a space. I may not be able to help you, you know, completely with it, but you can bring that here and we'll talk about it and we'll figure out where to go from here. I just don't want to forget um, because this has been a part of several other ones. and I keep forgetting to mention forgiveness and how that fits into so many of these categories as well and can be used in an abusive way. So from the isolation piece, this pressure to forgive and the idea that this is an event rather than a process or that this is something
1: This is an isolated event. Oh gosh, so many you isolation could have been the title of your <laughs> That's that word is doing like three different jobs right now,
0: and that's funny. It's not the one that seems like the sexy theme that I came up with, but you're right. There's so much packed in here. There's a
1: lot going on. Yeah. So now we're well. That is an isolated instance, Mm -hmm. uh, and so let's forgive and move on. Yeah. And And the isolation. That's isolating. Yeah.
0: Yes. It's isolating because it's this kind of fake or surface level reconciliation where you still feel perhaps lonely or abandoned or abused. And so kind of isolated within this relationship, either with this other person or with the church or a larger system or your pastor. So you're kind of still in this surface level relationship, but it's not there's nothing authentic about it because you were forced to do this forgive 70 times seven. Oh,
1: right. And that's, of course, the language that could be brought up. It's just like, I think I have a a way of explaining this. It's like when a mom is like, say, you're sorry, Michael. It's like, (laughs) I'm sorry. And then as if that was it. And then like, like, everything's
0: better now. See, he said he was sorry.
1: Right. No, he didn't. Like that. It's like a, a grown up version of that.
0: Yeah. And that shows up in that abuse of power, too, because, you know, you have forgive as Jesus forgave you. And as if we could be like Jesus, <laughs> that's kind of, so So we might want to try, but this expectation that we can just turn things around and let go of things without the work of healing or accountability for the abuser.
1: There's some really interesting research going on these days about forgiveness in mm-hmm. sort of this psych research world, and also some really interesting theological reflection around What does it mean for forgiveness to be an embodied metaphor? I'll I'll credit uh, my friend, Sari Concepcion for chatting with me about that actually just yesterday. So uh, that's just a put a pin in that for some future episode. I I really want to look at that more. Um, So the next one, this is one of those kind of where it gets a little sticky as we were talking about earlier, where some genuine differences of opinion are overlapping with some abusive systems and patterns gender bias and discrimination.
0: Yep. And this showed up as a theme in, in all of my participants. And of of course, all my participants were women. And that wasn't intentional. Sure. That's just the people who chose to participate.
1: And they were all and straight or whatever, they were uh, all straight, cisgender yes. and heterosexual. And so but you could just throw in LGBTQ, for instance, It's going to be a very similar pattern here, right? I
0: think so. Yes. Uh, This is where that, again, hearkening back to that legitimized inequality. So if I can. Such a good term. If I can make you lower than me or other you and I have something to back it up, I have something that legitimizes that you are not as good as me or you are not able to do the same things I can. So, yes, that certainly can be true racially. That can be true in the LGBTQ plus community and the women in my in my study uh, who participated experienced
1: that. You I mean, I'm glad you mentioned race. I just really quickly when you were first saying this, uh, I think it was as the time that we're recording it two days ago. At a campaign rally, Trump was talking in Minnesota about Ilhan Omar and the Somalian refugees, of which there are apparently a good number in in Minnesota, and saying things like, and she tells us how to run our country. Like, he has legitimized inequality. Like, it's her country, too. She's a congresswoman. Like, you you know what I mean? But, like, just there's that language around it, and it can be so— So tiny, just this Mm -hmm. little they and they'll tell us how to run or she'll tell us how to run our country, our country, you know, and so that's obviously uh, it's an extreme example and it's a kind of a cavalier thing. But you can just imagine the the power that little phrases have, you know.
0: Right. Yeah. We could have a whole nother discussion about the legitimizing of so many things that have happened politically and just given.
1: Oh, let's not, (laughs) let's
0: not, we could, let's not. I'm exhausted,
1: but But yes, of course we could. And people are, yeah, yeah, yes.
0: But but that just shows you how, when someone in power reinforces a bias that you already have and that you're dealing with and how that help makes you then feel more righteous and within how you're feeling with it. So, so yeah, again, as it showed up in the, the study, sometimes this was the actual abuse, so to the participants who felt like they were discriminated against and not being able to, to serve out their calling because they were women. But often it just was a piece like this infamous submission passage. There were instances of marital rape that were described. And of course, there's that God says, you must submit to me if whatever I want happens. It's this God said women are lesser. So again, that using the sacred to manipulate and God is on my side. So you can't argue with it. And then that can get internalized in the women and and to where they believe it and perpetuate it themselves. So, Mm. you know, the women who felt discriminated against in their calling, just describe the systemic dismissal of their calling, you know, that of what they felt like they were supposed to do. And when you're told over and over again, that's not important or that's not what you're supposed to do, how that felt abusive to them.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that one kind of speaks for itself, and we've done a lot of episodes kind of around this issue. Um, it's very sad, but let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, stigma. So this was this is a little bit more uh, kind of a nuanced issue here.
0: It is, and this is another one where sometimes the stigma was the abuse. Sometimes it was a part of it. But many of the women described feeling shunned, feeling scapegoated, feeling shamed because of... They were trying to seek help or leave a marriage or cast out of their church after an annulment or all of those things. So some of the women described they're in a church system that had meetings about them where they were discussed. You know, they didn't know about the meetings, but discussed in these church settings where the church was told. So a very powerful term in the church is to some churches breaking fellowship. So church members were told to break fellowship with them. So this very intentional, systematic othering of you are no longer a part of us because you are trying to be safe in some way. One woman described, you know, her former church members would walk away from her in public when she saw them in public. There were threats to the other congregation of, if you support this, you need to examine yourself and your own sin. And of course, the implied idea that this is then going to happen to you, you're going to be next. Um, So that group think, and of course, the instance of literally being cast out of the youth group, being told you cannot come back here because you are the problem. You are the one bringing this in. So the stigmatizing and isolation that spills over into this one as well.
1: Wow. I mean, that one, I guess that one kind of speaks for itself. And you gave so many great examples. Let, let's get through the the last of the eight negatives <laughs> let's, let's and
0: then get to, get to the, let's get get to to the a, healing part. let get
1: to a little bit of hope here. Okay. So the final, guys, the final we've made one. it to the eight of the eight bad ones, victim blaming.
0: And I did tell you earlier, you know, in retrospect, again, more time, more not deadlines of a grad student. A lot of these probably could be collapsed, but it's fun to break them down like this as well. Well, and so, for our purposes, so the victim...
1: there's no harm to, to getting all the individual well, angles no here, you know, because I, my hope is that some people who have experienced this will hear their own story or they'll recognize mm-hmm. it as like, oh, I, want, I could end up doing this on accident you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like the more the merrier in that sense of like, sure. let's be more aware.
0: Yeah, that is – I share your hope. Absolutely. So the victim blaming, again, just a very classic – tactic of abusers to gaslight the abuser, make them think they're the problem. If you had just been a better wife, he wouldn't have to beat you. If you were a more submissive wife, this wouldn't happen. You're not praying enough. God doesn't love you the same. All of those kind of things. So whatever it can to, to just shut, it's again that control coming in to shut down any accountability for the abuser or to hold them up to a standard and consequences for it.
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah.
0: And and when you put that sacred piece in there, that amps it up.
1: Right. Of course. And the more explicit that connection is made for any of these, right, like the the sort of more religiously abusive the abuse is right. Mm -hmm. Gaslighting is a term that you just used. And that that's kind of come into it seems to me come into the public discourse in a new way with with Mm -hmm. Trump as president. (laughs) <laughs> and because he is so effective at doing that, both in speeches and on Twitter and everything like that, maybe just say a little bit more about gaslighting because i I think that it's not always easy to spot, and i don't know i just I feel like it's something that I'd like to have a better handle on,
0: sure and you know i it is becoming such a pop culture term almost that it is I think taking on new meanings and evolving a little bit, but my understanding of it. It actually comes from an old movie where part of the movie involved an actual gaslight, but it was a man trying to make a woman think she's crazy, like really getting her to where she doubts herself. And so in this context, really, trying to convince the victims like this didn't happen. If it did, it wasn't as bad as you thought it was. You're making too big a deal out of this, this planting seeds of doubt to trust yourself, to trust your gut, to know that something is wrong here. So it might even be, you know, if you're starting to question, I don't know, does God really say that? Then that you are the problem here if you are doubting. And, and so it's just another way of controlling and shut someone down by convincing them and internalizing that they are the problem.
1: It seems worth noting that self-doubt is actually a a pretty big tenet of certain theological systems, right? Mm. Uh, Conservative, reformed, you know, certain conservative angles of the reformed approach to Christianity are like, no, 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 total depravity, so-called worm theology. So some (laughs) of these church settings, let's just say you have a person who is abusive, just they are naturally that way. And they're in some side of some kind of leadership. Maybe they're the pastor, maybe they're whatever, a prominent volunteer, if they're the kind of person who would already naturally default to a kind of a gaslighting, like wh- people don't, we don't know that the heart is deceitful above all things. And then they're in a church where that is rewarded mm-hmm. kind of systemically. That's a bad recipe.
0: Yeah. That's another just twisting of self-denial and dying self that can be really powerful things and can be very sacred things to people. And that twisting of it, that makes it easier for to control someone makes it easier to hush someone who's trying to talk about being abused as well.
1: Well, that is a perfect segue into healing because healing is one of those words that has a, it's loaded. Uh, it's as you say, it's loaded in the religious world. So there's like faith healing. There's a lot of, a lot of Christian, sort of side streets where healing is almost exclusively used as like this thing you're praying for that God does miraculously all the time left and right. There's mm. like more holistic healing that we might talk about in the clinical sense. So let's start to unpack this word healing and, and how you saw it as a theme in your participants.
0: Yes. Much as I imagine your listeners may be, if they've made it to this point with us, um, I needed this piece (laughs) with my interviews. I needed to hear that perhaps there had been some distancing from this. And yes, healing being a very loaded term and this idea this seems to be another theme popping up that it's an event rather than a process, you know, have you healed or, and so in some ways, you know, we think of the medical you, know, you can see when a scab on your arm has healed if you got a cut, but this kind of healing is typically an ongoing process and can be ripped open again and wounded again very easily once you've experienced it. So, but I did just want to hear for these victims. I didn't want to assume that they had, So I tried to be open in that question. But if they had, what worked for them? And all of them were able to describe, yes, being, they all discussed it in the past tense. So I'm not sure what it would look like if I were to be able to talk to someone kind of in the midst of this. But I was hoping to be able to get some ideas to give hope to people in the midst of it. So I, I just specifically asked, like, what's been helpful? And so these themes of Support, it's kind of the opposite of the gaslighting or the opposite of the isolation. Validation of, yes, this was wrong. This was abusive. This should not have happened to you. Acceptance that it did happen. So believing them. Many of them, and I was thrilled with this, completely unprompted, mentioned counseling. So they had found the counselors who could handle this, who were able to provide space to this and to help them work through it without Feeling like they were imposing, so several of the women described corrective experiences. You know, this is part of the next conversation on spiritual transformation. But all of these women had exited the specific system that the abuse had happened in, and some of them entered another religious system. Some of them entered another Christian system, and so they just described, um, like the woman who had had the youth group situation described. I saw someone who suffered from depression, talking about her depression in church and being included and accepted. And it was mind blowing. It was just like, oh, she can do that here. That So that was just a really corrective experience for her as being able to see that there are places where this happened and not think that my experience is the only experience. So I also saw, again, this leads into the spiritual transformation, but those people who were able to kind of compartmentalize their experiences versus conflating their relationship with God if they still had one. And being able to kind of say this happened here, but this that doesn't generalize to everywhere or to every experience
1: there. Do we know anything about what the predictors are or what allows people to make that compartmentalization or is that still just very little is known?
0: Very little. I mean, from these seven, I would say those who had experiences in, since I had talked to them, that they were able to, but I don't I don't know the people who didn't. I don't know why they just said, nope, it's, I'm done with God. I'm done with religion. It's all the same. And And that may be part of the work that people can do in counseling, if it comes up in counseling as well, if they want to, if that's something that they want to pull apart.
1: Something that that came out when you were talking about, so one of the women heard someone at her new church talk about depression openly, and that was a really healing experience. That's actually one of the ways that I've kind of conceived of part of the job of this show is I I did some amateur quantitative research uh, over the last few years where I've asked people what their major roadblocks are to faith. This is whether Mm. or not they're still a Christian or you know whatever just what what are, I'm tr- I'm looking for the most common things that have gotten in the way for people and um so I have a kind of a list I don't, I don't have it up right now but you know Christians being hypocritical um you know teachings not lining up with people's experience a couple examples off the top of my head but then I I was like okay well if I go a step further like what's the antidote to that and I thought well I I think at least as far as what the podcast can do and what other church communities could do, for instance, is provide an alternate expression. So if, for instance, like one of the top ones was narrow-minded Christians, and, you know, there might be a little selection bias, the type of people who like (laughs) my show are answering this, you know, survey or whatever. But among that population, right? So expansively-minded Christians, like interview people like yourself, You know, most of the people I interview are Christians and are not narrow-minded. And so giving expression to alternatives to these shortcomings isn't – it's like you might call it an embodied or experiential way without being didactic, without just telling Mm -hmm. people the solution. Nobody just said to your participant, hey, did you know it's okay to talk about depression? That's not the thing that was powerful. She just happened to experience it she made the connection. Oh, someone is in church talking about depression, right? Right.
0: Right. So the you know, the thing about stereotypes, and I think also works for this situation, you know, it's not that they're untrue, it's that they're incomplete or, or that they're not elements of that. So, so this idea that her experience in that abusive system, you know, that was true, but it's not the entirety of the possibility of experiences are out there. So yes, I think, Providing voices as you do on this podcast, which is so important.
1: Oh, that- <laughs> thank you, Paula. You don't have to. No buttering up is necessary.
0: But we've you know made it this saying. far. But it's true. Adding to the narrative and providing other narratives because the pervasive narrative is so narrow, so, and and that's out there. That's true, but it's not complete.
1: I, I wonder if I'm someone listening, and I'm in any kind of context, organizational context, be that religious or not. Maybe a takeaway from this aspect of the conversation would be like focusing on those stories and, and letting those stories be told. And if you have a, a section for that in your program or service or if that could be added in, uh, because mm-hmm. you never know when someone's going to hear a story and it's just going to flick a light bulb on for them with their own experience in a way that no amount of you know specific teaching ever will. Right.
0: Right. And just, you know, again, this idea that church has to be a place where you clean up to go to and you only see the shiny stuff versus being able to be real and vulnerable and and how to do that and share our struggles in a way that doesn't then create those boundaries and unhealthy relationships and, and enmeshment and codependence. So it's, a, it's an ongoing thing, but I would definitely want to err on the side of authenticity and rather than having to feel like you're shiny systems.
1: Yeah. So those stories aren't all like A to B testimonies. I was a drug Mm -hmm. addict and now God saved me or whatever, where then everybody thinks, oh, I guess my story has to look like that. Like a variety of stories that are real and authentic and just let people see themselves in some way. Okay. Now I am prescribing pastors (laughs) what to do and I'll stop
0: in my role as a counseling professor, when I have students going into practicum for the first time, of course, they're terrified often. They're baby counselors. The first time they're actually seeing a client, they're so eager and earnest and really want to help. Yeah, I'm working with my
1: second client right now and it's just so, it's such a crazy experience. It's such a cool
0: time though. I love being able to be on this end of it. And I really, as their supervisors, their clinical supervisor in this, I really want to create a safe place for them to struggle. I don't want it to be a performative come in here and show me how you performed as a counselor. I want them to come in and say, this is where I really messed up. Help me. I want to get better. And so I think the correlation then or the just transfer um, to churches is a safe place to struggle, too, that it is not the shiny place, but that you can be authentic and don't have to bring in the performative piece.
1: Well, that's about as Christ-like. As we can get, right? He hung out with <laughs> people who could not perform at the level that their society required of them, and that, mm-hmm. that's what made them outcasts. And, and the he was, anger
0: was saved for those who were.
1: Right, exactly, who were performing perfectly. Okay, last bit here. And this yeah. one is so interesting, especially in the context of a show like this. Spiritual transformation. So uh, how did, for, for those who continued in faith or came back to faith... What did it look like post this experience of abuse?
0: Yeah, and of course, there's always the question of how much was this just normal spiritual development. There's lots of spiritual development models out there that, of how people's faith, you know, changes or evolves over time. But what That's these great. women, yeah. yeah, what these women described. So as I mentioned earlier, all of them exited, so none of them remained in the abusive system. But speaking to clinicians out there and other people, some people do like, and and we have to be willing to allow that autonomy for them to figure out because there may be other things keeping them there. And, you know, there's lots of reasons why people stay in abusive systems. And so, um, but all the women in my study did choose to, to leave that system. Some of them not voluntarily initially, but all of them were now glad to be separated from that. Five of them described going back into a religious or Christian system. So five of them were back in churches that where they felt very much safer places where they were able to be not perfect, of course, but they had those corrective experiences. One was still in the pondering stage. She just said, I'm not, I'm just not exactly sure what um, what yeah. I'm thinking. And then one I des- I would describe as a very evangelical atheist. She very much had come out of this just with, I am not honoring a system that honored me and that did not honor me that, and she had kind of put all religion into being bad. So but she felt very empowered in that. And that was a piece of her healing as well, to be able to, to have that voice to say, no, I'm not going to be a part of of the system anymore. So there was, as we mentioned earlier, some of those people who were able to pull it apart and some who continued to conflate. So the spiritual part of it, the people who seem to remain in the system and continue to develop a relationship with God described it as this was not God, this was a person, or this was a group of people, yeah. and God wasn't in this. And just on a personal note, I would say that I was really worried about what this might do to me personally. You know, I I alluded to earlier, I'd had Mm -hmm. some really dark nights of the soul. I'd had some times where I just could not wrap my brain intellectually and rationally around God and, and have always come back to not just religious system, but belief in God and God being big enough to handle my doubt and God being big enough to handle those questions. And so, but I also was just kind of like, I don't know what's going to happen here when I really go into the shadow side of religion and look at these pieces and and how angry I might get. And I actually found that for me since then, I have felt personally, spiritually much much closer to God, much stronger in my faith, because it's so seeing what I don't think God is and what I don't think healthy religious systems are so confirmed for me what I think are and how important it is to seek those out and to help create those and who God truly is.
1: Interesting. That's cool. Well, say a little bit more about that. Like, so obviously we've spent a lot of time talking about what they aren't. <laughs> and you, at great detail, but how? Give me a uh, give me a look into being at your church now, and like, what are the new lenses that you see some aspect of your current church experience through? And how, what's that like?
0: Well, I mean, starting kind of at the top, at the top, I would say my pastor is someone who has, from what I can tell, zero interest in power. Like she really does not want to control anyone. She really trusts that she wants to shepherd the church, but not, you know, push and guide and control it. And I have great respect for that. Before we joined this church, my husband and I went out to dinner with her and her husband and spent two hours just really like, what is happening here? What's going to, what are your beliefs? We need to be able to understand all of this. And she was amazing and non-defensive was just loved it actually loved being able to talk about all of this and made us feel really safe in that questioning so I I would caution anyone if you're in a system that squelches questions to just use caution and to keep asking questions so that's there she uses the term radical hospitality every Sunday that it's a church where all who are welcome. And that's why I feel really confident that if someone wanted to come in and explore other things, that she would be able to provide a space for that without compromising her beliefs or the beliefs of the core construct of the church. So not easily threatened. It's just a really authentic, safe group of people where you know I haven't always been my best self and yet I've felt still loved and accepted and encouraged. So that's a few qualities.
1: I keep finding myself thinking like, you know, when we look for churches and whatnot, uh, when we look for know, most, most things sort of in the faith world, we we have like some policies or some positions on theological questions or whatever. I, I'm like, could we change the the conversation around that and just do like a maturity test? Mm. Like if you just found a church <laughs> where the people at the top were mature, isn't that like this most straightforward <laughs> way of talking about this. She just sounds like a very mature adult, mm-hmm. not egotistical, not not insecure, right? right? Like that just that's kind of servant. what I'm hearing.
0: And that, yeah, I know this is Christian lingo, but just a true servant's heart, you know, just someone who truly wants to do this to serve people and to create a space for people to be drawn to that radical hospitality and the gifts that God offers. So... So, yeah, yeah.
1: I one last question about the the transformation in mm-hmm. your participants. What processes did you see? So you, you kind of talked a little bit more, I think, about the end the end state. But mm-hmm. I, and I don't know, you know, you don't get into every detail of everything. But did you get any vibe from them about what they did or what they went through? What happened to them in that middle space from then to now?
0: You know, I think in that middle space there was of course a lot of pain there was a lot of grief and and I'm really glad you asked that thank you for asking that you know that's also something that I that I work with my students on as we're getting into counselors that we we want people to feel better <laughs> you know we we go into this profession because we want to help people feel heal and and healing and and I realized even in this conversation yeah I wanted to get to this part to where like there was an okay ending. You know, There was an okay part of all of this darkness that we've been talking about. But in order to get that, you have to be comfortable sitting with the pain for a while. You have to be able to, to live with it and talk to it and give it space to, to come out rather than squelch down. And so I think the people who did that found support systems who were able to do that talk to enough people to have other voices rather than just the abusive ones around them. And perhaps we're persistent. So that might be something I might say to someone listening who is not finding that support to be persistent in seeking that support from a wide variety of voices.
1: What are just, I had this also written down earlier. What are some examples of, of places where people find this kind of support? Because as we saw, as we talked at the very beginning, your first reflex is like your church Okay, right. you, you might find a different church, but that takes work. And, and you also you'd forgive yourself, you ought to forgive yourself, if you don't want to go to a religious setting after you've mm-hmm. experienced abuse in a religious setting. Mm-hmm. So what are the just just name a few things that people would look look to?
0: Sure. Like there are, I mean, of course I'm a counselor, so I'm going to say counseling that that's, I'm always going to advocate for that. You know, people who know you, so family members that maybe you haven't been as open with your struggles about, but it's taking a risk. Anytime you open up to people, you're taking a risk, right. That they may cause more harm or they may be able to create, provide that support. There's, there are online forums for everything in the world. And of course you have to be careful there because There's, (laughs) there's, <laughs> we all know why, but there, but there is places to find community now that we have access to with technology that we didn't otherwise. So if you are isolated in you know, maybe just a small rural community that doesn't have anything that really looks like could be supportive for you, there's access to that.
1: I'm working on a, a website called SoYourDeconstructing with Sari e. Concepcion, who I mentioned earlier in our conversation. That might be live by the time, this episode is out. It might not be. Cool. Some version of it will probably be up there. And we have a thing about digital communities and in-person communities. So there's like a, a list of some Facebook groups and, and stuff like that. That's maybe one uh, little possibility as well, if, if people are looking for that.
0: Yeah. And things like this, you know, hearing other voices, the stories that you're the people you interview share, hearing people talk about this in ways that you might not hear in your immediate community.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. so it's hard cool. though, it's hard, Paula. Dr. Swindle, what <laughs> a conversation! I know, I know, but I you know,
0: I so enjoyed this.
1: It's important that people understand that you've done the work, you know, well, you've earned that title. In the it was show funny. notes, funny. I was I was reading
0: back through my dissertation in preparation for this. I'm like, wow, there are a lot of references here. I really did do a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, you did. You did a lot of really good. <laughs> in the work. middle
0: of it, it doesn't always feel that way, but I do. I so appreciate your willingness to discuss it and your passion around it, and your willingness to just help spread the word um, that there is there. Is, it happens, and there is healing that can happen as well.
1: Well, in the notes, we've got your Instagram account. You started an Instagram account uh, for this kind of work. And you will be launching a podcast. It probably won't be out by the time this is out, but people should follow you on Instagram and then they will. I'm sure you'll announce the podcast as that goes around. So
0: with my awesome pastor that I've talked about.
1: Right. Oh, it's you and her. Right. Oh, now I'm now I'm waiting. Okay, (laughs) great. Well, so that so seriously, if a lot of this resonated with your own personal experience, that would be an ideal setting get a hold of that podcast once it's going and and listen to that that's what we're talking about okay great thank you so much paula
0: thank you so much
1: thanks to josh gilbert for editing my conversation with paula and of course thanks you thanks to dr swindle for spending like two hours talking about this with me And all the other hours she's already spent helping me uh, toward the dissertation. Definitely check out her show. Follow her on Instagram. You know, if this is something that you've dealt with or uh, a field of of, uh, research, a topic that you're interested in, she's one of the only people doing it right now. She is she's got her ear to the ground. And uh, yeah, so I'm I'm very excited to have become friends with her over the last uh, couple months here. Okay, join the Patreon if you'd like to help financially and get some exclusive content. Patreon.com slash Dan Koch. Uh, we'll see you next week with an episode, an interview with Jared Bias of the Bible for Normal People podcast. The first in a ongoing series of uh, basically me interviewing people who do Bible-related podcasts because... I don't think I'm ever going to do a specifically Bible-related podcast, so I'm going to introduce you to other people who are doing Bible-related podcasts that I think are doing good work. And Jared happens to be the first one of those that I've interviewed, but there are more of those coming as well. Okay, everybody, be well.